Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. There's a quote that I've been coming to appreciate more and more in life. It goes, learning to unlearn is the highest form of education. If you've been listening to Big Questions, you'll know that I've had to unlearn many habits as I've evolved from being a writer, starting a business. One of the biggest was how I saw myself in relation to advertising, marketing, publicity, and sales. I mentioned many times in conversations with guests how I was taught in journalism school back in the day about the wall. The wall that stood between what I wrote as a journalist and the advertisers, marketers, and publicists who sold what I wrote on the other side. Never cross to the advertising side of the wall, I was told, or you'll never be respected again. You'll be seen as a sellout, and you'll never again be hired to do what you love. It was a different time. Back in the 60s, early 70s, and this may be hard for young people to fathom, it was rare for a rock star to align with a company. That would have been seen as selling out. I remember bringing that up to Damon John of Shark Tank, who started out sewing and selling clothing as a young guy on the streets of New York. You know how he responded. When you're in business, that's the idea. To sell out. The rules have changed with the internet, and I needed to learn how to feel comfortable speaking up about myself and getting the word out about what I'm doing. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Hangouts. I've struggled feeling comfortable with all of it for years as I typed with two thumbs on my iPhone. But then I had a conversation, conversation you're about to hear with Michael Casson shortly before he was inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame. I don't know what it was about this conversation, but things have never been the same for me since. I've been trying to sledgehammer down this wall for a long time. But after this conversation, it wasn't as if the wall had been completely knocked down. It was as if the wall had completely disintegrated, disappeared. I had unlearned the wall. This freed me, enabled me to get to a new place to a lot of new places actually, and I can tell you what I'm up to. I can tell you about my sponsors in a way that's as pure as the way I feel about my writing. And soon I'm gonna start to move toward doing this across many different platforms on the internet and wait until you see where I go next week. To the cutting edge of technology, that's right, me. Anyway, I knew I had reached this new place when I spoke about podcast sponsorship with a friend of mine just the other day, the podcaster Michael Gervais. Michael has a wonderful podcast called Finding Mastery. It's conversations with people who do extraordinary things so we can all see the patterns of how to do the extraordinary. Here's a small piece of our conversation about advertisers. I gotta say, this makes me feel so good. What so was, good because I went through a similar experience and ultimately 
met some people uh, who make these amazing hoodies. The company's called Sportique. We'll get you one. I love it. And I love wearing these hoodies. I love wearing the sweatpants. I love wearing the t-shirt. And so it's not a product that I'm advertising. I'm telling people, this is what I wear. That's it. That, that's, that is the spirit that I love too. And so it's introducing that sportique to your community. And we've got a special partner, Athletic Greens. And so both of us right now are mechanically giving a plug to a company that we love. And I, I love what they stand for, what they've done. They've taken uh, 51 iterations in 10 years to get micronutrients that we normally wouldn't eat into a proper formula. And Oh, man. For oh, you. Yeah, for me. Yeah. So I got a whole box for you. So, no, seriously, I brought, I brought, I brought one with me, you know, so like you're kidding right. up now. No, yeah. that's, but this, but this is this the is ultimate the, point. This that's is right. This it's is community not, building. It's, it's not yeah. something on the other side of a wall that we're relying on to make the podcast float. It's, it's, it's a, like a partnership in a way, a it friendship. Is. It is. It feels that way when you get it right. So that's the difference between transaction and transformational partnerships. That's only a snippet from our conversation. And after that conversation ended, we walked out of the office I'd lined up at a penthouse of a WeWork overlooking Los Angeles. Said goodbye to Sienna, manning the desk on the 23rd floor, and Lupe, who makes sure the coffee and tea are just right. I was completely at one with doing what I do, as well as with the people who are sponsoring what I do and allowing me to tell you about it. Sometimes... After years and years of trying and trying, things just click. And I've got to thank Michael Casson and the conversation we had for moving me to new ground. Michael is the founder and CEO of MediaLink. It integrates advertising, marketing, content, sales, service, and commerce. What does that mean? It means he's at the very heart, at the intersection of Silicon Valley Madison Avenue, Hollywood, and Wall Street. He pieces together everything I need to know about and maybe everything you'd like to know too. He's one smart fellow, and that's why he was recently inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame. I caught up with him just before that induction, and that's when the magic happened. Let's get straight to it now. Hey, congratulations. You are going to the Advertising Hall of Fame. Who'd have thunk it? You did, you, did you, when you were a kid, ever watch like the Alka-Seltzer commercial? I can't believe I ate the whole thing and think, one day I'm going to be in the Advertising Hall of Fame. Not a shot. What I did watch was a lot of baseball games and thought one day I could be in Cooperstown. <laughs> so this was really a surprise. Oh, but you got to the Hall of Fame anyway. Well, you know, uh, they make mistakes sometimes. And apparently this year <laughs> they, they, they had a void they needed to fill. And there you have it. But how does the mind of an advertiser think? Like when you were a kid, were you thinking in terms of ads when you were seven years old, 10 years old? 
Yeah, I'm sure I was, but not from the perspective of my creating them. And just to be clear, that's not the part of the business that I focus on. So I tend to be more focused on media and the delivery of those messages as opposed to the creation of those messages, although it's not foreign to me, obviously. Do you love those messages? Oh, yeah. The ones that work really work. The ones that last, uh, leave lasting impressions. You talked about Alka-Seltzer. I think we all could have our top 25, you know, jingles or taglines or sayings that you can associate with brands. And those are the ones that really stand out. I think, you know, we could literally go through our life and I kind of mark my life by music. And I think of the soundtrack of my life. I also think if we looked at commercial messages, there'd be a a commercial message. Soundtrack. Soundtrack to your life. Interesting. As you are going along, have you seen changes in advertising? There's one question that I'm really, I, I got to jump ahead and ask you. Just got it because I'm the whole car ride here. I was really curious about this. The first time you heard that people were willing to pay not to see advertisements, where were you and what were you thinking? Well, interesting. Um, I think. The idea of subscription. So let me go back. You jumped ahead yeah, to ask I a question. Help, I couldn't, and let I shouldn't go. have done that. No, no, no. It's all quite right. all right. Good. Thank I, you. I, Thank I, you I'm for gonna, taking I'm, me back. I'm going to take you back. Okay. I'm going to take you back to the time and place where um, the marriage, if you will, of commercial messages and the delivery of content was foundational. And that may be all the way back to hieroglyphics. Who knows? But we've all grown up. Uh, you know, of a certain generation, of a certain group, age-wise, demographic-wise, in a world where content was delivered on the back of advertising, and you didn't think of it. So when I grew up, we had just regular television, and this was pre-cable, so you either had rabbit ears on your television or you put an antenna up on your roof. And you got in those days, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I was born in New York, but same principle, you had channel two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen in the major metropolitan areas, that's right. and that's what you had. And we all thought that was free because, as I said, you put rabbit ears on the TV or an antenna on your rooftop, and you got all those shows that you like to watch. It was never free, Cal. Let me let you in on a little secret. There was always a consideration that was paid, and that consideration was your attention to the commercial messages that were subsidizing the delivery of that content. Commercial avoidance, as we'll call it for the moment, didn't start with digital video recorders with TiVo and Replay. They didn't start with DVRs or Betamax machines where you could tape a TV show and you could kind of fast forward through the commercials. I would submit to you commercial avoidance started the moment you created the remote control and put it into the hand of the consumer. Because if the consumer didn't have to get up to change the station, when the commercial came on, they were watching it. Wow. So you could sense when that happened, the advertising world- Was changing. It was shook. It was, was it The moment you put it in the hand of the consumer, you watch what happened. You know, you go all the way back and, you know, uh, our listeners are probably going to think I'm 140 when I tell this story. But when you go all the way back to, you know- the father of television, modern television, Milton Berle. And you look back at the statistic they did that when the Milton Berle show was the number one show in the world on television, and really he was the 
father of making television relevant in, in terms of that era. What they noticed was water consumption in New York rose during commercials. Well, guess what that meant? Everybody People got up for bathroom. a bathroom break. I mean, <laughs> that's when you got away from watching during commercials. So even then, there was a bit of commercial avoidance. Got it. But we never really accepted the fact that that's how we got what we wanted, whether it was on the radio, whether it was on television. It was subsidized by the commercial messages that were being delivered. You know, that commercial avoidance is not new. It just became... It was put on steroids when, you know, the current technology and the SVOD, the subscription video on demand, or the subscription podcast, you know, that doesn't need commercial surrounding it, it's still seeping into people that you don't need to. So what happens is the commercial messages that we now want to watch are actually generally speaking, about things that we're interested in. So if I am looking for a new car, if it's that time that my car lease is up or I've moved to a new city or my kid is getting their driver's license and it's time to make a, a, a new car purchase, that's when I want to see car ads. I'm interested in understanding what the different models are and, and what the price points are. But when I'm not, kind of why am I looking at it? I have a friend in the industry who years ago talked about polydent, which is for uh, people's dentures. dentures. Right. And they said, gee, only 8% of the world's population is toothless. And yet when polydent buys a commercial on radio or television, they're reaching 100% or 100% of the audience that's watching. What they wanted was the 8%. Just find me the toothless, we used to say. <laughs> Got it. And, and so that same mantra today has become refined so that Data and the insights that one can draw from the data allow a marketer to be more precise about reaching the toothless, if you will. Bad analogy, but reaching you when you are in market for a car, reaching you when you are thinking of that next family vacation, reaching you when you're thinking of moving your home, reaching you with messages that are relevant. And so we talk, and I'll take a breath in a moment, I promise, but we talk about Today, finding the right consumer on the right device at the right time in the right context. It seems like that's all right. I would submit to you that that's the best way to reach that engaged consumer. I would also submit to you that in marketing and advertising, and I try to broaden the definition of advertising to include marketing, there is something that we all strive for, which is still that surprise and delight or what I'd characterize as serendipity. And the quick story I'll tell is it was an important birthday several years ago. And my wife said, hey, do you want to watch for your birthday? And I said, you know, honey, no, I, I, I'm stopping changing watches as much. And I used to collect and I'm not doing that anymore. So, no, I don't, I don't want to watch. But, you know, thank you. So I was affirmatively not in the market for a watch. Guess what? I picked up a catalog in my apartment in New York. And there was a beautiful picture of a watch. And I looked at it and I went, whoa, maybe I am interested in a watch. I was affirmatively out of the market, but I saw an ad and it caught my eye. And you know what? I bought that watch. So here was an affirmative decision against something and advertising, just a really beautiful picture. And the word just said dazzling under this watch. And I said, eh, maybe I do want a watch. And I bought it. So serendipity, surprise and delight. 
caught my eye and converted me from no to yes. That's the power of advertising. What do you think of all of the young people who are bombarded by all this information? For you and I, it was those few channels. And I'm maybe showing my age, but basically at like two in the morning, everything went out. And then at six in the morning, you you turn on the TV, it was beep. And then they would uh, get rolling with some cartoon well, you know, I, I don't know that it's age anymore that's the differentiator. We all are inundated with so many messages from so many places these days that it's daunting. And it's it, it can make your eyes glaze over. But I think you have much more discerning consumers with the younger generation. And, and I do believe they have the ability to be more selective in how they enjoy their content and how they enjoy the messages that they're getting and whether or not they want advertising. But it's easy to say, gee, um, I'd rather figure out ways to pay to avoid advertising, except in the real world, not everybody can afford to do that. And, you know, we all tend to forget that on the left coast and the right coast, you know, we may say, well, it's another $10 a month or another $6 a month or whatever it may be for Netflix or Disney Plus or Comcast's Infinity or what Time Warner's offering will be or Warner Media's offering will be in the marketplace or Hulu or any of the places that you can now both enjoy content many times without advertising, most often with an option to have advertising. And again, in a certain milieu, we say, yes, $6, $10, it's okay. But there's a whole lot of folks in the world who can't afford that additional $6 or $10 or $5. They're on more fixed incomes or budgets that don't allow for that. And advertising is still a great way to grease the skids. It's still a great way to cover the cost of delivering the content you want to enjoy. So I think there's a conundrum right now. The, the younger consumer is figuring out ways to do it differently. But, you know, there are platforms today that'll pay you to watch advertising. This I never heard of. Well, it's like frequent flyer points. You know, if you think back to people in one of the Somebody's places. Somebody's going to pay absolutely. for me to watch There ads. are many platforms today that will say, if we know you've engaged with a particular commercial message and you've allowed the marketer, whoever it is, to market their goods or services to you, and you actually are engaged and pay attention, we'll reward you. We'll give you a point. We'll give you a discount. We'll make a donation to a charity. We'll do social good. There are many platforms like that because the marketers know you need to use a different seduction today to get people to pay attention to marketing. Okay, so you just used a great story about the watch, and it completely made your point about the power of an advertisement. Your mind was dead set against something. You saw a beautiful ad, a dazzling ad, and you went in the opposite direction. How powerful is storytelling in this new world? Well, Cal, I'd submit to you that there's no part of our lives where storytelling isn't important. If you're trying to sell a product or a service or goods, you have to tell a story. You have to convince the person that it's important to them and why your product or service is better than the next person's or more compelling. But everything we do, if I'm trying to communicate something to my kids or my grandkids, it's about how I tell that story, about how I engage them, about how I catch their attention so I make sure I have their attention. Because the hardest thing to do in today's environment and the most valuable thing 
that people have or we want as marketers is people's attention. Well, you have to be able to get their attention and storytelling, good storytelling, will still be, in my mind and for my money, the differentiator between getting someone's attention, getting their engagement, having them, quote, pay attention, so you can deliver the message you want to deliver. So storytelling is at the core of everything we do. When I met my wife and I wanted to tell her I loved her and I wanted her to spend the rest of her life with me, I had to tell a story. What was the story? Oh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> I was just going to jump out of the chair and hug you after what you just said about storytelling because I just started a, a business to help businesses tell their story. So for decades, as you can tell from the book that I handed you, I was working at Esquire magazine, interviewing icons who shaped the world. And what I realized now is there are so many companies that could use this help in finding their stories and articulating them. And my feeling was, wow, if I could jump in and help, I'm going to impact a lot of lives. Absolutely. Is, is this what you've been doing all your life? Well, I fancy myself a, a reasonably good storyteller. Um, I was blessed or cursed with a good memory. Uh, my dad, uh, when he was a kid, did stand up in the Catskill Mountains in the Borscht Belt. So... <clears throat> I'm, as I say, blessed or cursed with, you know, a storehouse of about a million jokes and stories that I can recount. We're in a different day and age. I can't tell many of those jokes anymore, but, uh, but I haven't forgotten them. And, you know, oftentimes I'll have somebody call me and say, hey, Michael, I've got a golf game with a big client. I need a good joke. Or I'm giving a speech. I need a good joke. Can you give me a good joke? And I say, it doesn't work that way. I, I, I have to... You got to be in the moment. I got to be in the moment. Right. I said, if you give me a song cue, I can sing a freaking aria. I just need the song cue. Okay. So, but it's about storytelling. And, and so have I been doing that? Yeah, I think I've been doing that my whole life. Not for a living, but it's certainly impacted my ability to make a living. Well, what I, I know, looking back at your history, you were uh, owned franchises of Pollo Loco. How I was a crazy chicken once in my life. <laughs> What, how did that start? And I, I just want to well, quickly I, I, get your history up to where uh, we're my, at now. My, my, my journey began as a lawyer. Uh, I was a tax lawyer, of all things, uh, for about 10 years, focused here in L.A. and, you know, working in the entertainment industry a lot. But, you know, uh, tax law was an interesting thing to do back in those days. But? Uh, no, no but. Uh, but I always fancied myself being the client, not the lawyer, ultimately. I didn't know, I knew what the end would be. I wasn't sure what the means to that end would be. And, you know, we can all plan, as my grandmother used to say, and God laughs. So I didn't set out on a plan that said it's going to happen here or there. I just knew that I was on a road and at some point there'd be an exit. And that exit would take me from being the lawyer to being the client. Was, was that a, a hard reinvention? No. Not for me. Um, for me, it was natural. For many, it's difficult. For me, it was natural. I always thought of myself, whilst I practiced law and had to think like a lawyer and protect the client and be strategic in how you did that, I always tried to put myself in the client's shoes. And I always felt that I'd be more comfortable on that side of the table, honestly. And I, I just didn't know what... The impetus would be to get me there, but I just knew that ultimately that was the journey I was on. So how do you go from that 
serious position to the crazy chicken. So I had a client who was the founder of El Pollo Loco in a place called Sinaloa, uh, Mexico, and they came here to the United States, and I tasted it in the guy's garage. His name was Humberto Galvez, and Mr. Ochoa, whose na first name I never knew, he was always Mr. Ochoa, and Mr. Martinez, whose first name I did not know, but they were the founders in Sinaloa, Mexico, and they hired a lawyer here in the United States, and that happened to be me. And I tasted the chicken in 1981 in their garage, and I said, this is really, really good. This is healthy, it's not fried. This was the first healthy fast food. All the way back in 1981, if you can imagine, that long ago, um, we went to the American Heart Association and had the American Heart Association put the Healthy Heart logo on a fast food restaurant, which is an oxymoron. But we were able to do it because it wasn't fried. And it was really fun to be at the start of something that revolutionized quick service restaurants and brought a healthier alternative to what arguably wasn't deemed to be healthy in the marketplace by, by all accounts. And, uh, you know, it was fun to have a kind of a tiger by the tail because when El Pollo Loco hit in this market here in Southern California, particularly, it was a rocket. I mean, these places opened and they were just instantly profitable. I, I tell a funny story. My father-in-law was an obstetrician and gynecologist and very successful at that in New York. And when we opened our first restaurant here in Los Angeles, the opening weekend, I'll let you in on a little secret, we used to give one, buy one, get one free. That was the opening weekend in okay. each one of the stores. So you'd you know, get the audience and get the neighborhood jazzed up. And so uh, my father-in-law came to that first opening in Norwalk, California, when my first restaurant opened. And people were lined up for blocks. And he thought, my God, you know, I went to medical school. I did all this. He said, I've been successful. I've had a wonderful practice. But you got people lined up around the street, around the block. I said, I called him dad. And I said, dad, let me let you in a little secret. We're giving it away for free. I said, if you want to deliver babies for free, I bet you they'll be lined up around the block. So don't get too excited. But it was an interesting time and an interesting place to be as, as part of a, a revolution in, in quick service. Food. What did that teach you about your own sense of reinvention? Did it make you realize, wow, there could be a few of these in my life? Well, it turned out there were. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that it proved uh, that there are certain skills that you may choose to apply them to different aspects of your life, but the same basic skill set can have different applications and different iterations. So I didn't change much about what I did or who I was or how I did it, but I've been fortunate to do it in three or four different aspects of my life. So you started with something in this conversation about the Hall of Fame, and I'll tell you a secret about a pep talk that I give to my team frequently. And I've done this for probably the last 40 years in business. I talk about the fact that in the history of Major League Baseball, because I was a baseball aficionado growing up and still do have a lot of, of, of affection for baseball. But there's a little known statistic, which is the following. In the history of Major League Baseball, only 27 players have ended their careers with a lifetime batting average of 333 or better. So if you do math at all, you realize that means you get up to bat, and if you get a hit one out of three times, guess what? you're guaranteed a spot in the Hall of Fame. 
Every one of those 27 players uh, are hanging on the wall at Cooperstown. So I look at life not different than that. It's about getting up to bat. And in my career, I've had at least three at bats. And so culminating with uh, what will happen in the next few weeks uh, with the disinduction into the Advertising Hall of Fame, I guess it's fair to say I got to hit at least out one out of three times and, uh, you know, validated my belief that if you do that in life, you get into the Hall of Fame in whatever aspect of your life that may be. And I, I was fortunate, and I guess I'm very fortunate that I can prove out my own pep talk. But it sounds like you're batting better than 333 here. Well, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm not known as a modest guy, but I'm actually <laughs> pretty modest guy. I don't know by what standard, but so what was the next step after Apoyo Local? It, well, it it coincided. It wasn't that that was a step that continued. You know, I was in that business until we sold all of our restaurants back in 1999. So I was in that business for almost a grand total years. of almost 20 years right. from the first one to the final sale. Uh, so there were a lot of parts of my life that that crossed over. But the transition for me was effectively from lawyer to business person to media person. Those were the three. Um, you know, transitions I made. I went from practicing law to running an entertainment company. At the same time, I had started to open the restaurant franchises, which was never a full-time business for me, but an important business because we expanded it pretty rapidly outside of Southern California into Central California, Northern California, and Nevada, at least in the terms of the territories that I controlled. But at the same time, I had gone through other transitions in my life relative to business focus. And about close to 30 years ago, I ended up uh, finding myself running the largest media buying agency in the world. And what uh, does that mean? What uh, is a media buying agency? A media buying agency effectively in its early days, it's changed dramatically in, in these past 30 years, but a media buying agency at its core was the place you went to buy the time. So you'd go to a advertising agency on the creative side to create your message, do the artwork, tell the story, you'd go to a media agency to take that commercial message or that print ad or that it. billboard and place it on a billboard or on the radio or on television. And this was before we had the, the, the veritable cornucopia of choices that we have today. We didn't have an internet then. We didn't have, you know, streaming, you know, media. We had you know, as I said, we had television, we had radio, we had magazines, we had billboards, we had newspapers, and that was about it. Those we had yellow pages. I mean, those were the advertising mediums that we had. Today, the proliferation of platforms and social media and streaming and the like, it, you know, it's 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 a blur as to where you get your messages and the different delivery mechanisms. But, you know, it was a simpler business when I came into it. So how did you evolve as the business evolved? I've always tried in my career to find smart people that I can learn from because you can't know everything. And in this transition, when I did transition from a traditional linear broadcast media, you know, big player buying radio and television and billboards and magazines and newspapers, I knew I under needed to understand the next iteration. And it was a good time. It was at the turn of the century. It was like 2003 was, or so? No, it was actually a little earlier. It was right, right around 2000 at the millennium. Uh, we were in the midst of that dot-com explosion. And, and if you wanted to stay relevant, which I did, but I wasn't thinking of relevance then 
to the business, I was thinking of relevance to my kids. And I said to myself, how do I stay relevant to my kids? My kids are old now. Kids are in their 40s. Wow. And, you know, but, yeah. Man, I but never would have thought of that. How, how do I stay relevant to my kids? I said, I want to learn where media is going. And I don't mean it just from media buying. I just mean communication and information and media. Where's it going? Because that's so important in our lives. And so I surrounded myself with some pretty smart people, and I learned a lot. And the unintended benefit of that was I did maintain relevance to my kids, but I also maintained relevance in the industry, and I was able to stay fresh. And it was all by just reading and learning and listening and not thinking I knew it all. God knows I don't. And, and embracing the new technologies and trying to get underneath them and understand the basic context of what it was about. And, and that's how I did it. It's, and that's when you started MediaLink? That's kind of when I started MediaLink. What exactly does MediaLink do? Well, um, that's uh, how long we got on this oh, okay. uh, conversation. It's hard to uh, No, it's not summarize. hard at all. We, 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 we fancy ourselves a strategic advisory firm that lives at a unique intersection. And that intersection is the one where marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology converge. And if you think of it as a conference table with all of those disciplines seated around the conference table, those who are in marketing, those who are in advertising, those who are in media, those who are in content creation, those who are in distribution, those who are in uh, technology that, that enables all of it, if they're all sitting around a conference table, the unique position MediaLink's been able to occupy in the market is representing all sides of that equation representing the multiple parties and the multiple levers because the team we've built of a little shy of 200 folks in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, LA, and London um, are people who come from an operational focus, not just consultative, not just a lot of consultants who are going to go in and learn your business and then give you advice based on something you know far better than they. Uh, we look at ourselves as people who have an operational bent. So when we come into a problem, when we come into a challenge to an opportunity that a brand or an agency or a publisher or a technology company or a financial investor has around our intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology, we're gonna give you advice that's practical. We're gonna give you advice that's actionable. Because somebody drafting a 400-page deck and saying, here's what happens in a perfect world and this is what you should do, good luck, that's not interesting to me. What's interesting is you have a challenge, you have a problem, you have an opportunity. We're gonna help you understand it, conquer it, meet the challenge, succeed at it, but we're gonna do it in a way that is actionable because it's not meaningful if it's not. So do you create the content or do you send out people to we, create the we content? We are not in the business of creating content, but we are in the business of influencing content. You know, there used to be a great tagline back to our soundtrack of our commercial messages in our life. There was a company, may still be a company, Archer Daniels Midland, and they had a tagline that was something like this. We don't make things, we just make things better. What I've said about MediaLink is somewhat similar. We don't make things, we make things happen. So we're not in the business of creating commercial messages. 
We're in the business of enhancing them. We're not in the business of buying media on behalf of our clients, but we're in the business of optimizing it. We're not in the business of creating technology solutions generally, but we're in the business of identifying the best technology solutions. Does that, does that okay, resonate? Wow, this sounds deep, brother. <laughs> we're going deep here. <laughs> I'm just trying to uh, figure out how to tell stories for people or help people find their stories. It sounds like you're— Well, but, but to that point, one of the things that one has to do today in storytelling is understand the utilization of data and the insights that you glean from that data so it can enhance and en enable you to tell the story better so that I know that if Sally or Bobby or Jimmy or Johnny is going to hear a story, I know what they're interested in I'm going to because I have the data that now informs me. So I'm going to be able to tell the story in a way that's going to resonate with them, whereas if it's to somebody of a different demographic or a different you know, uh, background, I'm going to have to tell the story differently because I know that. And okay, so I'd become polydent in a way if if I just throw the story out there to everybody and there's only 8% of the people, the toothless people. Right, exactly. I, I need to just locate where those 8% of the toothless people are. Well, and the that data story. that is now available to us enables us to do that in a more refined fashion. You know, there's a famous quote from the advertising industry from over 100 years ago from a gentleman whose name was John Wanamaker. John Wanamaker's family owned a very large department store chain on the East Coast in Philadelphia and New York and Wanamaker's department store. And John Wanamaker famously said, 50% of my advertising dollars are wasted. The question is, which 50%? <laughs> <laughs> and it's been the question that we've pondered for years and year, hundred years in the advertising industry. I submit to you today we can answer that question with more specificity than ever before because the data will tell us more about how that consumer interacted. Did they actually watch it? Did they interact with it? Did they change the channel? Did they go to the bathroom? Did I mean, that's a harder one to know, but we have the ability to know. And we also have the ability to know in your household, maybe you have three TV channels, well, sets. Maybe you have one in your kid's room, one in your den, and one in your office, and one in the kitchen. So that's four. So maybe your partner, wife, spouse is watching one thing, your kid's watching something else. And if you're a marketer and you want to get into your house you can now know not only how do I get into your house, I can do that. I can also know what you're watching, but I can also know based on the fact that a Nickelodeon is on in one room, I'm going to bet that's the kid's room. Right. And if Home Shopping Network's on in another, I'm going to bet that. And if, uh, you know, Desperate Housewives was still on and that's on, I'm going to bet that's probably going to be, uh, you know, mom, not the kid. These are things that we now know as marketers. I'm using very basic examples, but we can utilize that data to inform the decision-making. And I would add one thing. In storytelling, and we've seen Amazon do this as well as anybody, and Netflix, they create content based on what the consumer's choices are. So they know that consumers are enjoying more procedurals. So you're going to see more procedurals. They know that consumers are liking romantic comedies. They're going to make more romantic comedies. I mean, and they know what you want because they know what your viewing patterns are. So no different than Amazon in its earliest days said, if you like this book, you're going to like those books. All that is is predictive modeling that's based on what you've done and the actions you've taken. So I've really got to embrace this digital world in order to take storytelling to this next level. 
Well, look, I've I've interviewed sitting in your seat. I've interviewed a lot of very famous network chiefs, you know, people who ran CBS and NBC and ABC and, you know, all the broadcast and cable networks. And I've always said to them, you know, historically, the decisions on what would be on the air, whether it, you know, was one person or a committee, was based on somebody's gut. What did I think? Do I like that? Is it good? Is it pretty? Is it smart? Is it informative? Today, when you can lay data on top of your gut, on top of what your sense is, that should inform your sense. But I always ask the question to those people who, you know, traditionally had made kind of gut level decisions. I like that person. I think that actor or that actress or that, you know, person is right for the role. The data can tell you that now. So I always ask that question. What part is your gut and your sense and that kind of sixth sense? And what part is the data? And the right answer is always it's a combination. Okay, so I, th I hear all the nuances in your language and your tone of voice. It turns me to a question because I may have made like a huge... It's funny, you still look like a man. You're, now you're a question. I didn't know that. <laughs> Where's the dot? No, I'm no, kidding. I'm 100% I'm, I'm questions. Curiosity is my middle name. So Eli is my middle name, just so we're clear. There we go. So I did this crazy thing, and it... It's because Can of, I be the judge of that? Well, that's what that's what I'm going to ask you okay. about. Okay. So you know this wall that was always between editorial and advertising. Oh God, yes. When I came up in journalism schools around the time of Watergate, you, I was told, do not cross the wall. Do not ever go to the sales side, the advertising side, the marketing side. If you do, your reputation's done, and you'll never do what you love again. And I never crossed the wall. Well. Now I'm realizing this wall has basically been knocked down and it's only in my head. Well, no, I'm not sure I agree with that it's only in your head. I mean, um, native advertising, uh, as we use that expression, isn't a bad thing. You know, we're sitting here in a radio broadcast booth uh, having this conversation. I would submit to you that, that uh, native advertising goes back to the earliest days of radio. Your DJ, your companion, your friend, Bob Pittman, likes to talk about uh, the CEO of iHeart. Right, the family quality. Yeah. Well, the, but the, you the companionship right. that you, you become, become friends, the, right. you create with that DJ, right. with that, that voice on the radio. It becomes your companion. It becomes your friend. You're driving in the car together. You're getting you know up in the morning and shaving and doing whatever else you're doing in the morning with the radio on. You create a companionship and a friendship. But, you know, you can't tell me that you don't remember a thousand, a million times in your life when the DJ did a product placement and said, hey, this weekend I went to see that new movie or I went out to Disneyland. or That's advertising right. and that's native advertising. Okay. That's in its earliest form. Today, that advertainment, that crossing of the blurring of the lines between advertising and editorial has occurred, but there still has to be a healthy respect between the two. There still has to be an acknowledgement that, you know, we're advertising something here. Let's not be, let's not be confused. You know, product integration and product placement and native advertising, those are all forms of advertising. And, and you still have to have respect and a healthy respect for that line between editorial and advertising. 
When I talk about, on my own radio broadcast, when I talk about a brand, if I have a financial relationship with that brand, I always mention it. I always feel it's appropriate to say, I'm telling you that I think this product is great, but I'm also telling you that that product is something is a company that I work with. Okay. And I just think that that's, it goes to the heart of what I believe is important in this environment, which is creating trust always and being transparent. And so the wall between advertising and editorial is easier to blur if you are authentic, if you're transparent, and you're truthful. That's me. There you go. You've solved the problem. <laughs> I didn't even know I told you I was a problem there. solver. Here you go. I feel great. Thank you. I've so had that effect on people my whole life. <laughs> Thank you so much because now I feel like I have like the best of both worlds in me. And I'm I'm so grateful. I'm gonna walk out of here feeling like the old cow and a new cow. I like it. This could be my Pollo Loco. Uh, hey, if you can leave here and feel like a crazy chicken, it's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much. I so appreciated this time and the wisdom. My pleasure. Right. Thank you. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss once again for pushing me out past my comfort zone to start this podcast. My life is in a completely different place because of you, Tim. And there are tens of thousands of other people who say the same. Much gratitude from all of us, Tim. Want to thank Kevin, the manager, and Luz, the audio engineer, for all they do. And of course, my sponsors. For the softest hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants, check out Sportique at S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E dot com. Use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. And if you're looking for a 20% discount on Office Space, go to www.we.co slash cal. I'm sure WeWork has exactly what you need because they got it all. A table, phone booth, small offices, conference rooms, podcast studios, even theaters at WeWork. And remember... If you're anywhere near Munich, Germany on July 5th and 6th, you might want to attend my storytelling workshop. It'll show businesses how to tell their company's authentic story, their product story, their customer stories, and your own story. It'll be a great time to lift a beer. Check it out on cocrea.com. That's C-O-K-R-E-A.com. And join me in Munich. Cheers!